our sermon this morning is on Jesus and children, specifically from Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. So turn to Luke 18, 15 to 17 in your Bibles, if you have them. If not, uh, dial that up on your, on your phone or your, your mobile device. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. We're going to look at how Jesus interacts with children. We're going to look at what he thinks about children. We're going to look at uh, how he uh, interacts with other adults, specifically about children. And we're going to consider what this text, um, what the implications are of Luke 18 for us and how we view children, interact with children, uh, and also what we can learn from children and how, uh, how you know, in, in a lot of ways, children are a model and are a template for, for how we as, as uh, adults, as Christians, should interact with, with God. So let's read Luke 18, 15 to 17, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus so that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called out to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word to instruct us and to, uh, to show us how to live. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would teach us uh, about yourself, that you would teach us about ourselves. We pray that we could respond by obeying you and by uh, following you for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to Jesus so that he might touch them. Jesus was constantly surrounded by large crowds of of people. People would travel from far and wide to see him, to see what the big deal was, to hear his teaching, or to be fed, to see a miracle so that they, you know, have food or to be to be healed. And so they would hear that this guy was coming through their town. They would kind of come and, and see him. They'd bring their children to him. Here, touch my kid, hold my kid, heal him if he's sick, or if he's not sick, just bless him and make sure that he uh, doesn't get, get sick. And Jesus' disciples, when they see this, when they see these kids, I mean, as, as young as infants being brought to Jesus and him holding them, they're thinking, this is a waste of time. They see it and they rebuke uh, the adults who are bringing the children to him. Right? Don't you, don't you know who this is? This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the, the man who is going to kind of overthrow the Roman Empire and kind of put the people of God back on top of the power structure. Jesus doesn't have time for children. Jesus doesn't have time for people that are not going to, you know, participate in and contribute to the revolution that he is kind of making happen. So get these these people away from Jesus lest his valuable time be wasted. Which was how uh, this is how much of the ancient world, uh, you know, largely outside of Christianity and, and before it Judaism, but also even some obviously within Christianity, within Judaism, the, the, much of the world uh, saw people uh, as e- you're either valuable to me or you are not valuable to me. You are either worth my time or you are a waste of my time. There's either some way in which me interacting with you can benefit me and therefore you get, you're worthy of my time or, there, or you're not. 
right? And so, so people's worth, their value was determined by if they were big and strong and powerful, right? And if they were, if they were weak and small and powerless, they had no value. They didn't matter, and society would, would dismiss them largely outright. This is true for children. This is true for women. This is true for uh, poor people, for sick people, uh, disabled people. This is true for elderly people. I mean, you can kind of go across the, the gambit of the, of the social kind of horizon. And, and you know, your, your worth and your value as a person and your, you know, whether or not you uh, can be treated like a person and can receive, uh, you know, basic necessities is, is quantified by whether you are you know, a, a, an adult male, a contributor, an earner, um, or, or at least your proximity to a, a, an adult male, right? So, so you're, you're, if you're a kid, you only get my time based on your proximity to your father. Or if you're an elderly person, you get my time based on your proximity to your son or your, your son-in-law. A lot of cultures uh, didn't even uh, have, you know, uh, you know, would enslave entire people groups, enslave entire societies. They wouldn't even learn their names. They just, you know, people are, are essentially small, insignificant cogs in a large machine that are here to serve my, my agenda, to kind of give me what I want. Christianity and Judaism before it uh, stood out like a sore thumb. Uh, in, in the cultures of their day because it understood, according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that humanity is created uh, in God's image, right? right? Our, our worth and our value and our dignity as people is not wrapped up in what I can contribute. It's not wrapped up in what I can do for you. My value is not based on what I can produce and give to you. My value is based on who made, made me, the fact that God made me and that God cares uh, about me. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth and, and all of the animals and, you know, birds and fish and everything that, that's in the, the earth. And then he creates God, he creates male and female, and he creates them specifically in his, his image. And so while the rest of the world in the first century is saying, you know, people matter because of what they can do for me, what I can get from them. People matter because they have money or resources that I want or need, and so I'll serve them in the hopes that I can get something from them. Christianity says people matter because of, how, because of who made them and because of how he made them. And so, I mean, again, you can kind of walk through any number of those people, the, the, the elderly, right? Um, you know, cultures like Greece and Rome abhorred the idea of, of aging. It reminded them of their own mortality. It reminded them of their finiteness. And so they, they uh, viewed the elderly as, as a burden or an imposition. And so the, the hope, cross your fingers, that you had a son or a son-in-law when you got old that could take care of you. And if you didn't, chances are you're going to be destitute or, or homeless, Right? Uh, and, chance, and, and you'd also hope that your son or son-in-law wouldn't just cut you off and abandon you and say, I'm not going to take care of you. And Christianity stood in contrast to this with texts like First, uh, First Timothy 5, we studied last summer, right? Uh, you know, Paul goes out of his way to say, you know, as, as, a, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to take care of your family members, particularly your elderly family members. And he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus, when he was speaking to the, the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, he essentially uh, accuses them, confronts them, and rebukes them uh, for uh, depriving their elderly parents of basic necessities that they needed. He says, 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother that whatever you would have gained is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, and you make the word of God void by your tradition. The Pharisees were essentially, they would have elderly parents who were in need, And they would basically say to them, I know that God has called me to take care of you in your old age, uh, but I have devoted all of, everything that I have is already accounted for. I've already earmarked it all as to be given to the church. It's to be given to God. So all my money is, sorry, mom and dad, it's not even mine to give you anymore. It was almost like a money laundering scheme. And then they would use this money that was devoted to God. They would like buy fancy clothes and jewelry to wear to church. And they'd say, see, this is for God, because I'm, like, I'm wearing these, these things to, to church. And Jesus says, you can't do that. You cannot, you cannot uh, deprive, like you cannot uh, abandon your parents in their time of need, um, you know, and, and, and keep all of your stuff for yourself and then pretend that you're serving God while you do it. Women was the same way. The, the ancient world uh, did not think very highly of women. The ancient world did not, uh, you know, uh, view women as as important, right? Women in the ancient world were largely, their worth was tied up in their ability to produce children, and specifically to produce you with a male heir that could carry on your name and that you could kind of give your stuff to and let it be inherited. When, when, you're, when a child was born, for much of the world outside of Christianity and, and Judaism before it, uh, a child was born and you're like crossing your fingers hoping that it's a male because if you have a male child, like male children were seen as a, 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 you know, a burden, right? But it was like an investment. So, so like 10 to 20 years, I'm going to invest in this kid. I'm going to feed him. It's a, you know, it's, it's a significant expense and a significant uh, burden. But when he becomes an adult, now I've got a safety net. Now I've got someone who can take care of me. So I'm going to invest in this male child for 10 to 20 years and then get a return on my investment when I get older. Female children uh, were, were largely seen as a, as a liability into perpetuity. So I'm going to invest in, I have to feed, there's another mouth to feed, I've got to invest in this child for 10 to 20 years, at which point she's not going to be able to contribute and and earn and kind of take care of me in my old age, at which point I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get her off the books. I'm going to have to find someone to marry her, and then they had to provide these like large dowries, which is essentially like, you know, finding some guy, like bribing some guy to take this woman on so that you, know, he, so that you don't have to take care of her as you uh, get, get older. So it was, it was uh, you know, Christianity kind of stood in stark contrast in how they viewed and understood uh, women, right? Christianity taught that, that women, uh, they, they possess a, a unique, they're, they're not just financial burdens, they're, they're people. They, they were created in the image of God. They have a unique and distinctive and, and kind of a valuable and irreplaceable way in which they express the character of God and the, the glory of God. Men were created in the image of God and they say something about the character of God and the glory of God. And women were created in the image of God and they say something about the character of God and the glory of God, right? Jesus all throughout the gospels is seen teaching women, talking to women, inviting women to follow him in discipleship and trusting meaningful ministries to, to women. So the, the world largely thought of women as uh, not valuable and disposable, and they would dismiss them outright. And Christianity and Jesus kind of valued and welcomed and, and elevated the status of, of women. 
sick people and disabled people uh, is, is particularly interesting because of the role that it played in the, the emergence of the early church. The, the, the ancient world, by and large, viewed sick people as like, like gross, get them, get them away from me, right? Like, you know, they just assumed that everything, that every possible medical condition was contagious and they would, you know, right, get out of town, like go, go live in that leper colony outside of town so you don't give me what, and you're like, I've just sprained my ankle. And they're like, well, get away. Like, I don't want your sprained ankle to infect my healthy ankle. So go live in that leper colony and just, and good luck in, in isolation, Christians were different, right? Christians, uh, you know, had some kind of, you know, understanding about, you know, diseases and, and, you know, being communicable and things like that. But, but largely, Christians understood Jesus to be um, the great physician, right? Like, to, to, to have drawn near to us when we were sick and dying and helping us. And so they, they understood themselves to have a responsibility to draw near to people who were sick and, and dying. Uh, one secular historian uh, actually, again, puts his finger on this as why Christianity uh, can, like, was sustained throughout the first few centuries of church history and why it exists today. He says, in the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect that this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. Whatever the actual disease was, it was lethal, and, and many contagious diseases uh, are when they strike a previously unexposed population. During the 15-year duration of this epidemic, a quarter to a third of the population died from it. And at the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great in many cities that the emperor wrote, uh, that the emperor, who subsequently died of the disease, wrote of caravans and carts and wagons that were to, to haul out dead bodies. A century later came another great plague, and once again, the Greco-Roman world trembled. Families, friends, neighbors were all dying horribly. No one knew how to treat the stricken, and most people didn't even try. The typical response when someone was sick was to try to avoid contact with them since it was understood that it was contagious, and when their first symptom appeared, victims were thrown into the streets where dead and dying people lay in huge piles." That's how, the, that's how the, the world, by and large, understood sick people, disabled people, people who are suffering and dying. And then here's how he talks about Christians, by contrast. Um, Christians, by contrast, met the obligation to care for the sick rather than, desert, rather than to desert them. And thereby they saved an enormous number of lives. Under the circumstances prevailing in this era, even quite elementary nursing would, uh, would greatly reduce mortality. Simply providing someone with food and water while they were temporarily too weak to cope for themselves and to recover would keep them from perishing. It's entirely plausible that Christian nursing would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds. The fact that most stricken Christians survived did not go unnoticed. And it led to a rumor that Christians were miracle workers. Indeed, miracles often included pagan neighbors and relatives. This surely must have produced some conversions, especially by those who were nursed back to health. In addition, while Christians did nurse some pagans, being so outnumbered, obviously they could not have cared for most of them while all. Hence, Christians as a group would have enjoyed a far superior survival rate, and on those grounds alone, the percentage of Christians in population would have increased substantially as the result of these plagues in the early church. So as a secular historian saying that uh, you know, people were dying in droves and Christians were drawing near to people who were sick and dying. And because of it, Christian, the Christian population was growing. 
through, through evangelistic converts, people were saying, we, you know, uh, we want to become Christians because they can heal us from this disease and just because of the fact that their own people were not uh, dying. So your value, your worth, your dignity, it's not based on what you can offer me. And the second that you're kind of labeled as, as disabled, you are of no more value to me. Value, dignity, and worth are based on who made you and he, the image that he made you in. And then finally, like we see in, in uh, you know, Luke 18, uh, babies and children. The world saw elderly people, disposable, commodities, women, disposable, uh, sick people, disabled people, disposable, and children were disposable. And they were, you know, it's like, like your cell phone today. Keep it, enjoy it, you know, have, have, have a good time with it. But if you don't want it, abuse it, throw it away. It doesn't really matter. It's your possession. Do with it what you want to do with it. Again, common practice. If you were in the ancient world, if you were uh, going to, if you wanted a boy and you gave birth to a girl, you would just, uh, you would, you would kill your child. And they would, they would kill uh, babies in, in large numbers, mostly by, by exposure. They would leave, the, they would just abandon uh, infant children, literally put it in a, a clay pot or some sort of, you know, like a jar, and just put it with the trash and just kind of let the baby die from exposure. It would happen with children who were born with physical deformities. They would be thrown out. They just kind of were, were predetermined. There's no way this, this person, this child can be a pr- productive member of society. They'll do more harm than good on our culture at large. So let's not like prolong their agony. Let's just go ahead and, and kill them while they're too, too many children. Uh, they, they would have, they, they, abortion was, was, uh, was available in the ancient world just like it is uh, today. Now, of course, abortion, there is technology and sterilization has come a long way since the ancient world. So more often than not, when you would have an abortion in the ancient world, it would kill the mother as well as the baby. And uh, the, the judge, jury, and executioner of whether or not you were going to have an abortion was the father. And so a, a lot of times fathers would decide to have, as soon as a father would get a male heir, he would say, well, I don't need any more mouths. I have a healthy young son now. I don't need any more mouths to feed. So if his wife would get pregnant again, he would elect to have an abortion. And then it would be over the wife's objections because she knew that in all likelihood it was going to kill her baby and probably her too. And, and a lot of times uh, the, the, the patriarch of the household would, would go ahead and, and move forward with an abortion anyway. And, you know, he would, his unborn child and his wife would both be, would both be killed. The, it's a quote from Aristotle. Aristotle is like right one of the Greek philosophers. He's kind of widely celebrated in ancient Greece as one of the, the wisest and one of the you know the most enlightened people that we have. He's the guy that we look to for philosophical enlightenment. And he says, as to the exposure of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be allowed to live. And if couples have too many children, then let abortions be procured before. Uh, or during the pregnancy, before their, before their birth. So if you don't want to take care of your unborn child, just kill them. If you take one look at your child and determine that that child doesn't deserve to live, then you just kill that child. And, and what, was, what was even worse is that the, the way that they would do, you know, they would kind of appease their conscience by saying, well, we didn't kill this child, right? Like we just left, the, nature killed this child. We left this child, we abandoned this child and kind of left it, cold, in the streets, alone, and if this child dies, it's not on me, right? Like, Rome, uh, you know, understood, like, Rome kind of looked mythologically to their, like, the, the formation of their, of their civilization to Romulus and Remus, who were these, like, 
you know, abandoned children that grew up, they like nursed at the, the breast of like a wolf. Like, like you'll see like in Roman art, like these two babies nursing from a, a mother wolf. And that's Romulus and Remus. That's like the, the founders of, of ancient Rome, according to their mythological tradition. So like this was normal. Like they would say if, you know, it, it was not uncommon and it wasn't even scandalous to just leave a child to die and then to sleep like a baby at night by saying, I didn't kill my child. Like, if the gods want to save my child, they will. And if nature uh, kills my child, then that's on nature. But it's not on me. I, I am a good person. I don't kill children. And infanticide was just happening in, in droves. And of course, Christians stood in stark contrast to all this. Right? Christians understood, according to Psalm 127, that children uh, are a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of, of the womb is a reward from God. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, right? or the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. So ch- Christians, understood Christi- Christians understood children to be a blessing. They would love them and take care of them and enjoy them and protect them, provide for them and raise them and train them and disciple them. A lot of times, Christians would adopt abandoned infants from non-Christians who had been left out to die from exposure. Other cultures are killing their children. Their populations are on the decline. Christians are raising their children and adopting other people's children, and their population is on the rise. Right? So Christians, like, unlike the rest of the world, Christians don't understand children are, are a burden. Children are to be avoided if you want to. Go and have as much sex as you want with as many people as you want. Avoid pregnancy as best as you can. If you get pregnant, terminate that pregnancy. If you have a child, you can murder that child if it's inconvenient for you to have them. Right? God says children are a blessing. So, so you know, get married, be faithful to your spouse, have children, love them, raise them, be thankful for them. One of, the, one of the Canaanite gods, when, when, uh, when the people of God came into the promised land after leaving Egypt, they came in and one of the peoples that was kind of previously occupying Canaan were the Ammonites, and they worshipped a god named Molech, and Molech was this like, uh, you know, like a lot of gods in, in the ancient world, he was like uh, a human body with a bull's head, um, and he, the statue to Molech was this big bronze statue with its arms outstretched, uh, and the the, bod- the base of it was hollowed out, and you could start a fire in it. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna skip over some of the gory details here, but basically, to worship Molech was the god of fire, and he was the god of war. And if you're about to go to war with another civilization, and you didn't want, uh, you didn't want to lose this battle, you didn't, and which meant you'd probably be, you know, you're. you're your, your, all, all your entire population will be wiped out like genocide or you would be enslaved by them. So they're thinking, if we don't want to be beaten in this battle and we don't want to you know, become slaves of another civilization, we need to win this war, which means we need to appease Molech before we go into battle. And they understood the way that Molech was appeased was through child sacrifice. And they would, um, they would light a fire in the, the hollowed out base of this bronze statue, which would make the entire thing like you know burning hot like the coils inside of an oven or something like that, and they would, uh, they would kill children uh, on this statue to Molech. And they, the priests would like beat these drums and have these really loud chants to kind of drown out the screaming of children who were being sacrificed, the screaming of, of you know, hysterical parents who were upset that their children were being sacrificed. And the priests would justify it by saying, 
you know, we're going to sacrifice your child to save our whole entire civilization. Like, if, we, if Molech doesn't give us victory, we're all going to die or we're all going to be slaves. So we're going to kill your child in this very grotesque way so that we can win this coming uh, battle. So these, these are the prevailing views. These are like the barbaric views that are kind of like in the culture around Christianity and around Judaism. And, and even though Christianity and Judaism uh, valued and, and, and you know, understood the, the dignity of children and elderly people and sick people and what you name it, uh, that it still would kind of just be, they would still be affected by this kind of the air that they were breathing of just the disposableness of people that aren't of value to me personally, which is why Jesus' disciples say, get these children away from Jesus. They're not important. They have no value. They have no dignity. They're not worth Jesus' time. And Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Right? These children are not insignificant. These children are not worthless. They're not without value and dignity. They are they're precious. They are priceless because I made them and I love them and I care about them. So let these children come to me. Let me pick them up and hold them and, and play with them and tell them stories and listen to what they have to say. Jesus loved children. Jesus did not resent children. Jesus did not want children to be seen and not heard. Jesus loved kids and he wanted to spend time with them because Jesus recognized that children were created in the image of God and they possessed value and worth and dignity because of it. Texts like Luke 18, they're relevant for the abortion culture in, in, our, in our nation today, in our world today. Right? Texts like this are relevant to, to help us realize that it's not okay to, to kill your children before they're born or after they're born. It's not okay to kill them immediately before their birth. It's not okay to kill them immediately after conception. Right? You shouldn't murder children because God loves them and cares about them. Texts like this are relevant for parents. Right? Do you, do you enjoy your children and invest in them or do you endure your children? Do, you, do we engage with our children or do we ignore them? Do we, do we play with our children or do we you know, put, you know, keep them occupied with a screen or some other thing so that we can you know, sit idly and, and check out? Are we, are we reading the Bible with our children? Are we praying with our children? Are we teaching them what it means to trust and follow Jesus? Or are we just assuming that someone else would, like the government, the teacher, the school, the whatever, they, they will teach my children how to follow Jesus, and I don't need to do that. Texts like Luke 18 are relevant for how we treat our family, how we treat our aging parents. Do we love them, care for them, provide for them, or do we ignore them and kind of put them into a nursing home and never visit them and just keep them out of sight and out of mind until it's time to divide up the inheritance, right? It's relevant for how we treat our neighbors, right? People who are experiencing poverty and homelessness, people who can't afford health care, basic necessities, will we care about them and draw near to them and be sacrificially generous for them or will we ignore them? It's your fault. It's not my problem. Someone else's problem, government's problem, some charitable organization's problem, not my problem. 
right? It's relevant for, it's relevant for how, we peep, how we treat people of different ethnicities and different races, right? It's, uh, it's always interesting to me how a lot of Christians care a lot about abortion, but not that much about racism, or some Christians care a lot about racism, but not that much about abortion when they're, when they're essentially born out of the same theological and philosophical foundation, right? Abortion says until you're born, or until you cross some arbitrary threshold that I decide, until then you're not a person. You're you're a mass of cells, but you're not a person. You don't have worth. You don't have dignity. You're disposable, and I can terminate you if it's convenient for me to do, right? Abortion says I don't recognize the personhood of unborn children. Racism says I don't recognize the personhood of people who don't look like me. Right? I'm going to establish a hierarchy of, of which people and which ethnicities and which skin colors are higher and lower, which ones are more admirable and more godlike and which ones are lower and less godlike, which ones are worthy of more resources and which are not. God loves these people more than those. These people are created more in God's image than those people. These people are fully human. These people are not. It's the same exact impulse that drives abortion, the, the, the dehumanization of people that God loves and the denial of God's image in people that God created. So it's appropriate and and good to care a lot about abortion and to fight against abortion. And it's also appropriate and good to to care a lot about racism and to fight against racism. And and neither, both of them are gospel issues, both of them are, uh, you know, biblical issues, and neither one of them are, you know, exclusively political uh, issues. So that's, that's a, a lot of what we see. That, that's the first big overarching theme of this text has to do with uh, anthropology, right? What we've been talking about so far is anthropology, the doctrine of man or humanity, like what it means to be a person, what it means to be made in God's image, what the implications, the, the doctrine of the image of God, what are the implications of that for how we as a society organize ourselves and how we interact with other people. The first big theme of this text is anthropology, and the second big theme of this text is soteriology, which is not the doctrine of man, it's the doctrine of salvation, right? Anthropology is who am I? What does it mean to be made by God in God's image? What are the implications of that? Soteriology is how can I, as a sinful person, be reconciled to God, be saved by God? How can I be be justified so that I can experience God's salvation and live with him? That's soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And here's Jesus' soteriology. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. So that's how you're saved. You're you're saved according to Jesus by receiving the kingdom of God, by entering into the kingdom of God like a child. So what does that mean? Uh, It doesn't mean... um, to be immature or to be childish, right? There's, there's a difference between being childish and, and having a faith that is childlike. So Jesus is not, right? right? Childishness is, you know, life is all about me. I expect and demand everyone to do what I want them to do on my terms. I'm not going to pitch in. I'm not going to contribute. Everything's about I, 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 me, me, me. 
And Jesus is not commending childishness. Speaking about childishness in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but then when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. So Jesus is not commending childishness or immaturity. Rather, Jesus is saying if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, you have to have faith that is childlike. Here's how a couple of your elders put it uh, this week as I was interacting with them. One says, young children are often teachable, while adults can be stubborn and unteachable. We, as Christians, must approach the gospel as children, being teachable and eager to learn with no presumption. Another says, in a properly functioning family, the way God designed it, young children place complete trust in their parents. How many times have you seen a toddler jump off of a piece of furniture because they have complete faith that their father will catch them? This is the type of faith that Jesus is referring to, right? Kids trust their parents. My mom and my dad are going to take care of me. They know more than I do. They have their eye on more things than I do. All I need to do is, is be near them and, and trust in them to take, to take care of it, right? If you ask a, kid, if you ask a five-year-old how their you know, family's finances work, they're not going to know. That's not my department, right? I, I just do my chores and then go play outside. That's all, that's all I'm right. Mom and dad take care of me. Mom and dad give me everything that I need, and I trust them to do it. That's how a child interacts. With, that's not when you grow up. That's not anymore, right? When, you, when I went and bought a house, I couldn't, like, I couldn't say, like, that's someone else's department. Right? I want, you know, I, I want someone else, like, I had to sit down and read all the fine print. There's a hundred forms that they give you. I had to sit down and read all of the fine print because it's on me. Like, to, to, you know, form one. Right? Here's your mortgage payment. If you don't pay it, we're going to kick you out of your house. Sign here. Right? Form two. Like, this is the sign, this is a document saying that you certify that there's no termite damage in your house. And if there is, it's on you and not on us. How am I supposed to know that? I don't know, but sign it or you can't move in. Form three. You know, this is a sign saying that if an airplane flies over your house and it's too loud and wakes you up, your problem, not ours, no take backs, right? This, is a, this says that your house might be on a sinkhole and it might be swallowed up by the earth. Your problem, not ours, right? Your house is on an Indian burial ground. You might be haunted for the rest of your life. Your problem, you have to sign a hundred forms with every possible contingency, every possible liability, because they want to say, you, you're a grown-up now. You have to figure it out. You have to provide for yourself. You have to take care of every possible contingency. And if you don't, it's your problem, and you can't look to anyone else. There's no one else. It's just you. You have to sign them all. And Jesus is saying, you can enter into the kingdom of God like a, chi- like a grown-up or like a child. You can enter into the kingdom of God like a grown-up where you say, I have to account for every possible contingency. I have to know everything. I have to be aware of everything. I, I have to uh, you know, understand everything. My salvation is on me. I need to have enough spiritual currency that I can pay the balance of my salvation. I need to make sure that I'm good enough and smart enough and spiritual enough so that I can merit my own salvation. And if I don't, it's on me. Everything rises and falls on me. It's all about me and my aptitude and my performance. That's what it means to to seek to enter into the kingdom of God like a grown-up. It's all on you. To enter into the kingdom of God like a child means I'm this is not 
I'm not paying for this. Like, I, I don't need to. In fact, I cannot account for every possible contingency because I'm a child. All I need to do is trust in my father. I need to trust that my father is good, trust that he is strong, trust that he will take care of me, trust that he will protect me, trust that he will provide for me. I'm taking the burden of my salvation that is currently on my shoulders. I'm taking it off and I'm putting it onto the shoulders of Jesus who died in my place and who paid the penalty for my sin and who satisfied the wrath of God and who conquered death and got up out of the grave and invites me into his new resurrection life. How is my salvation secured? How can I have assurance for eternity? That's not my department. That's my Father's department. Jesus takes care of that. That is His department. All I have to do is do my chores and then go outside and repent and believe the gospel and then, and then enjoy my new life with Christ. Jesus takes care of my salvation. Jesus takes care of everything that I need. And all I do is trust Him to do it for me. And that is what we remember, and that is what we celebrate together at the communion table. We remember that Jesus died for us, and his death and his resurrection accomplishes our salvation, so we don't have to. Where we cannot, Jesus has done it for us. All we need to do is trust him with a childlike faith. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you trust in Jesus... If you are holding fast to Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. There are some individually packaged sanitary communion packets up here. When the last song starts, just come up, socially distance, come up, grab one, take it back to your seat, take a moment, pray, confess your sin, remember the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus, and then celebrate the glory of the gospel as you eat and drink. Uh, together as a family. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you don't take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead, we would invite you to trust in Jesus for the very first time, to give your sin to him and to receive his righteousness and his salvation that he offers freely to you. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond in song and we're going to take communion as we do. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you love children. We thank you that you love people who have nothing to offer you. We thank you that you love people who have no way of, of doing anything for you to pay you back. We thank you that you love people like that because we, we are like that. Jesus, we need you. You are our only hope. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn from our sin and trust in you and enter into your kingdom with faith like a child. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.